you don't want is that ELT is thinking the strategy is X and the board thinks the strategy is Y. And that's a horrible place to be as a CEO. And you need to get out of there very, very quickly or just leave because you're going to have a miserable life trying to keep two, effectively two wives happy. It doesn't work. Like it's, it, it doesn't, you got to, you, you, you have to just keep both sets happy, um, which means alignment. David, great to have you on the show. Thanks, Ricky. Awesome, mate. Hey, let's track back to your early years. What led you into tech? Fell into it. I was a lucky teenager with Commodore 64. Actually, my eldest cousin, who's about 10 years, 11 years older than me, used to be a computer salesman. So he gave me all his old gear. So I started with a Commodore 64 in my teens. But I was lucky enough to just like tech and got into the internet thingy-me-jig in about 1996. So right place, right time with a bit of a geek background. So yeah, it started when Google and Facebook and those guys hadn't really even been thought up. Netflix was still selling DVDs, subscriptions. So it's been a pretty amazing journey to just be a part of. So it's been a lot of fun. Nice. So mate, tinkering around with the computers, hardware's in the early days and now becoming a CEO of a global business. What led you from that to where you are now? What were the steps and monumental pivot points that you can look back on? Luck probably more than anything. You have to blame my dad a little bit. I wanted to be a musician coming out of school. He forced me to do a university degree in economics and business. I guess there was a business grounding there somewhere, even though i prefer to have a lot longer hair and running around with guitars on my back when I was a younger kid. Thank him for that. In terms of how do I end up being an MD, like it was the heady days of the internet. 1998, I was 27 year old working for a, a lovely old bloke by the name of Gary Henstridge. He just so happened to know all the guys at Microsoft. So we were the internet guys in Australia. So we were building websites for Microsoft and, you know, in fact, we had eBay and a whole pile of other guys that were doing things in pre-dot-com bust. And he had a segment of the market, which was media, and he said, well, you used to work for Kerry Packer. I said, I used to answer phones for Kerry Packer when I was a musician. So I'm not really working for Kerry <laughs> But you, you, know, you know media. So I wrote him a business plan and to get him off my case. And he said, do you want to run this? I went, oh, I don't know. Do I? Don't I? And he offered me 30% of it. and. I didn't know what to do. So I again, went back to my old man and said, what do you think? He says, you're 27 year old and he's offering you an MD job. I said, yeah, but it's, no, I'm building million dollar websites for Microsoft and these other guys. And this, it's a theoretical business plan. It's got $5,000 worth of revenue. I'm not, he goes, no, do it. Just, you know, you know, bite off more than you can chew and chew like hells. Two years later, we'd bought the parent business out of the back of that business because it got itself into trouble. And that was the, a company that was called One Media, then One Digital, and, and then we sold that to a multinational. And the luck part of that was the dot-com bust. So we ended up with this digital agency with real digital customers like an eBay and a Microsoft. Mm. They believed in the internet. And all the big tech companies retreated back to America when the dot-com bubble burst. While a lot of businesses disappeared, we still had businesses like the Commonwealth Bank and we were building their online bank for them. I do not have the tech credentials to have been doing that, but we were because we were just mavericks and thinking out what could you do with this new thing called the internet? And it was a lot mm. of fun. And all the competition gave up and went back to San Francisco. So I got lucky a little bit too. That's how I ended up with my first job. 
Nice. Well, you make your own luck, but sounds like you've learned a lot. You went from startup to scale up to dealing with the global players. What are some of those early learnings that you're applying in today's world day? Oh, the early day. What, what I learned was don't do that ever again. So that was a services <laughs> business. Services businesses are tough. Like You can only build as, as fast as you, you can build your people. And that's a great skill because it applies to all businesses, but particularly services business. If you hire badly, you, you've then got a customer on the phone who, you know, if I hired a bad account manager on Microsoft, my, I'm getting the managing director, which was Steve Vamos at the time, who then obviously ended up over at zero. He'd ring me and say, that account manager's just got to go. Like, I, I, and you've got to deal with that. You were very careful about hiring good people uh, in the services business. You probably can hide a little bit more when you're in software. Mm. Mm. And that was the other part of Microsoft, speaking with those guys about services businesses. And they didn't want to be a services business. And you can see why. So services businesses are very hard to scale. I probably learned a lot about hiring good people, but more importantly, try not to be a services business because it's super mm. hard to scale. Mm. That's a fair point, right? One of the other things I was going to pick up from your journey was how do you see the role of founder and professional CEO being so different? Yeah, and I've done it badly a couple of times. So I was a founder in those early days and that was hard yards. And I was young and didn't really know better and I had a passion and I wrote a business plan and I took a risk. Post that, I really haven't been a significant founder. I usually come in at the three-year mark or thereabouts when founders have done the hard yards. I think it's really important that people actually value, and I didn't in the early days, understand the value or the difference between a CEO and a founder. And that it's not a competing role and that founders can be actually liberated. So founder juice, you can't emulate. All founders are insane. I've not met one that's not. You have to be insane to put your mm. life on hold, mm. not really know whether you're going to get paid, let alone if you're a founder with kids. It was fine at 28. What did I have to lose? I didn't have kids. I didn't have, wasn't married. But once you're Dan Pollard, our founder, he's married, he's got kids, he's running a plumbing business and he decides to go and set up a software business. You've got to be a lunatic. And that pretty holds true to most founders. And it, I call it founder juice. And you don't want to lose that. And what usually happens is you start losing it. The founder starts being brought into hiring, firing, you know, stakeholder management, being beaten up by venture capital, not knowing how to actually get venture capital what they want to know. And you lose that excitement. And I, I think where, where Dan and I have been lucky to get to is he's just gone, huh, I don't want your job. I, I, I had your job. I don't want it back. It's not really my cup of tea, but mm. I really like being a founder ambassador, thinking about product and the problem we're trying to solve. And again, probably bringing back to Microsoft, I think Microsoft, while Gates is a genius, it missed a bit through the late 90s until they brought Bormer in and, that, and then Gates became chief innovation officer and they seemed to re-energize their innovation and they got a little bit of the genius back from Gates, who was pretty much in the late 80s and 90s was just dragged into reporting back to stock exchanges and things like that, which is not his genius, right? His, mm. his genius is his understanding how technology can change our lives and had the privilege of watching how that dynamic works. We're not Microsoft, but hopefully we can learn some of those things. But Dan and I have a good symbiotic relationship. And for, mm. for founders, and I think a lot of founders hold on to this, it's a failure if I'm not a CEO. And, and I think that's just a mistake. Yeah, I was going to touch on that a little bit further, right? So we obviously speak to a lot of early stage founders, Dave. Everyone wants to be Elon Musk. 
Because he's cracked the code, like he's cracked the code multiple times. Everyone thinks they can get to 2,000 staff and multi-location business, but you made some really solid points. It's about going back to what you truly love and bringing the expertise. You've been on both sides of the fence, Dave. When is the right time to bring in that help? It's been about three years for me. That's when I get involved because by three years, you've got revenue. That's more about me de-risking than the founder. It might be five years for some founders. There's no right time, but there is a wrong time. And the wrong time to bring in help is when you're burnt out. So you've got to try and do that before you're burnt out and actually just sitting in the corner, rocking backwards and forwards and going, the team hates me. I don't like my job and I'm out of mm. my comfort zone. Mm. And I think that's a really hard moment. Usually with boards, usually it tends to be venture boards that are going, are you sure you got this? Like you've missed your last five quarters. You don't seem happy. We've just had five complaints from some of the staff because we haven't got an ESOP yet. Like all those sorts of things, if you can see it coming, and I think my initial point there is if you don't see, if you want to be a CEO and you've actually thought about actually my career path is I want to be a CEO, what are the gaps in your learning? Do you have enough financial acumen? Do you need to go and do some college? What is it? I think if you actually looked at what a CEO does, most founders would go, actually, I don't want to do that. Like I'll bring in mm. some admin guys that know how to manage staff and do that. I, I really love what I'm doing, the founder bit. And then you've just got to get around letting go of founder-led product, which is actually the hardest thing is, is how can it be founder-influenced product, not founder-led product? Because that whole, if you've got a team of 30, 40, 50 developers, you can't have a founder say, no, we're pivoting and we're going over here because it's a great idea. They've also got to be able to listen to. And I've found most founders have one genius idea amongst 10. So you've got to get that trust factor. And then no one else has thought of that genius idea, but all 10 ideas founders think are a genius because they've got that undeniable faith that they're doing the right things. If you can get that right where you go, yeah, you are a genius, but those other nine ideas, yeah, not quite sure they're investable. Mm -hmm. Um, That's where you get the best of both worlds. And then the founders are going, I don't know. I don't know what we, we, that we've run out of coffee. Talk to the CEO. I don't care. That's not my job anymore. I'm out talking mm. to customers. I'm thinking about the problems we solve. I don't care that the coffee machine's empty. It's just not my problem anymore. I think that's when founders feel liberated. So obviously you've got a great relationship with your current founder. Have you had not as great relationships oh, I- in the past? I guess specifically, how do you manage that when there's a founder... Most of the time, majority shareholder, you come in, they want a certain thing. You think that's one of the nine bad ideas. How do you navigate that? Yeah, it's a really hard one to navigate. And I'm really happy with where Dan and I, I've only been able to do that because I've done it four or five times and made a lot of mistakes. Some of the mistakes are that there's a problem and there usually is a problem when they ask a CEO in and there might be a little bit of bad blood because it's very rarely... The founder goes, I'm putting up the white flag. Maybe they do, but it's they've been battered around the head by either situations or finance or whatever. Somebody's put them into that situation. So the self-awareness is a bit of an issue. So coming into that environment where, and quite regularly, I've been brought in by the venture, venture guys who go, we'll give you more money, but you're no longer the CEO, right? And, and, and that's a tricky situation to come in and say, I'm not a threat, by the way. Yeah, sure you're not. Like you just took my job. So that can be difficult. And sometimes the reaction of certainly a younger me was, you know what, you're in the road, get out. And very rarely is should that be the case. That's an amateur mistake. 
you've got to sit there. And the other mistake people do is, okay, so what did you produce as a founder? So you're trying to treat them like a sales person with how many new business, how much new business did you bring in? So founder juice is a kind of an interesting thing. And, and the analogy I'd give is it's a little bit like a, a television station. The news anchor doesn't work that hard, right? Everyone preps it for them. They swan in and they are treated a little differently to everybody else. But back in the day, news was the anchor to the entire television station. Not so much anymore. But mm. If you didn't have the number one news ratings, you wouldn't have the number one evening slot, which meant millions and millions and millions of dollars. So the likability of this guy to be able to, or girl, to come in and just be loved by everyone was there. <laughs> the, the, the founder's job is to be loved by everyone, but they are the guys that hold up the whole reason the thing started in the first place. Yeah. So if you can amplify that and, and hopefully make up for some of the managerial shortcomings that a lot of founders have. Often they're very clear on the solution and struggle to bring everyone for the ride. Once there's, when there's one or two, Harry's crazy and we'll go and have a beer afterwards. When there's 30 or 300, it takes a bit more nuance. I told this person, why doesn't everyone know? Well, there's 300 people across five continents. You have to tell them all five times before they actually all are, are up to speed with you. And that's where the filter comes mm -hmm. in. So yeah, the mistake is churning them out too early and there are situations where they're just poisonous and they have mm. to go but i think in, in most instances you have to go actually that where do they add value is it a product is it ambassadorial is it voice of customer what it's not usually in hiring and firing that's usually mm. where they mostly fall down have people because they like them and they look a little bit like them rather than actually you need someone who's actually prepared to stand up to you isn't usually where they're strong so obviously you come in as the bad cop and your role is to position the founder as the good cop. What does the blueprint of success look like at the time of that transition? As you mentioned, it can be quite challenging. What are all the things you're trying to obviously get it off their plate, but also then bring in the professionalism that the business requires? What does that 90-day period look like? Oh, and that all depends on what you've inherited. So usually you've been brought in and there's the courtship that you've had in meeting the the founder usually and the board and maybe a couple of the key execs. So it's all pretty rosy. They don't usually say these people all hate each other and you got to put the glue back together. So you usually come in and you go, how much do you all hate each other? And it, that also depends on the scale, right? If you're at pre one mil ARR, it's probably okay still. And you just got to just help everyone dream a little bit and grow a little bit and stop doing meaningless busy work. If you're at 510, you're actually starting to get it usually is, in my experience, that the magic number is about 50. At about 50 people, everything breaks because it's no longer, you cannot be friends with 50 people. It just doesn't work that way. Sub 20, certainly in my, in my agency, we had 190 odd people when we finally sold it. We went through all those transitions. Up to mm -hmm. 25, it was like a family. Mm -hmm. say, yeah, high fives. We lived, slept, drank. We, we were working till wee hours of the morning writing code and having a great time. That then breaks because then you get diversity, you've got people with families, with young kids, then you've got people from different backgrounds. And you're not all going to be mates. You can't have your mates as the glue. You've got to be respectful and bring in professional practices in. So I, th I think it just breaks at the 50 mark. So if you're coming into a, a more established business, it's usually harder. The younger businesses, it's literally, we're just going to build on what you've done and then you can build the culture. 
if it's broken and you're at 50 people and the culture's got a little bit of a blame culture and there's a bit of backbiting mm. and fighting and stuff like that, you've got a little bit more to do. And sometimes you might have to be surgical about who might just not survive that transition. There might be a levelling up. You've got some guy that the founder loves who's 22 years old and doesn't have a uni degree but he's the CFO and you go, not sure that person should be the CFO and can I hire over the top of them or do they have to just go because they don't have what it takes? So that you've got to make your mind up on that pretty quickly. Mm. Lots to unravel, right? And then obviously break down the Lego pieces and you've got to put it all together. Yeah. It's not all rosy. It's, it's got a lot of traps. What's the biggest mistake you made as a CEO, Dave? Oh, many. What's the biggest one I've made in Fergus is probably the, the, the recent history. The, the biggest mistake I think all businesses make is risk. Our tolerance for risk in businesses is actually less than the, I've seen a number of military analogies with business. What's interesting is that apparently sending someone to die has a greater tolerance for risk than getting a couple extra dollars into a business. So for me, I think it was Colin Powell, I speak at some stage, the, the military guy, I think for a Clinton and a couple of Bushes, mm. you know, he used to send people to their deaths on 60% intel. In business, it seems like we sometimes are working towards 99.9% intel and particularly in innovation. You're like, no, stop that. Aren't we meant to be doing fail fast and, and learn? And, and eBay had a really great saying, which was ready, fire, aim. You've got to have the team in place. You've got to know where you're going, but pull the trigger and then refine, which I always it stuck with me working with them as an organization, which is you can't just blindly go off with one person and expect to change the world. So you need the people mm. and you need the process, but don't get too concerned about the risk because we'll get it right as we go. Mm. I think that's probably the biggest area. So the biggest risk I see in all businesses is not doing anything. Everyone talks about risk, but not doing mm. anything is actually the biggest risk all businesses have. And then applying that to Fergus, I think that we, we were probably overly conservative about both geo expansion in the early days. Where should we go? Let's do some analysis. And then in the end, we just went, let's go to the UK. Why? Well, we've got 100 customers there already. That's as good a place as anywhere. It's the biggest place out of Australia and New Zealand with customers, so let's go there. And that's been a successful strategy. Not particularly strategic, right? It's like the easiest place to go. Maybe we could have gone to Germany as a bigger market. Maybe we could have taken on North America earlier. So I think the biggest mistake is over-indexing for risk. That's a good point, right? Sometimes you just overthink it. Follow the trend or follow the leading indicators to yeah. your point. We talked about mistakes. On the flip side, Dave, what are you most proud of? What have you been able to come into Fergus and do really well and take it into the next stage? Oh, I think culture and growth, and growth is hard in this sector. Like it, mm. it's not B2C. I don't think anyone in the JMS or, or field service management has been able to crack the 10x multiplier um, overnight. Like it's just B2B software does have a grind to it. So I'm, I'm proud that we've been up uplift our growth. But the biggest thing, the cultural mix right, the diversity component to that has been challenging. So we're in an industry that's both tech and trade. So I think trade industry is at 2%, tech industry is at 15 On my management team, it's just changed now. So it's about 50-50. It was 60-40 gender towards female, which is unheard of in our sector. The last time we did a little bit of an audit, I think it was at about the 75 person mark. We had 35 nationalities 
in the organization yep. and quite a lot of different sexual orientations. Not that I ask because we couldn't care. I couldn't care less where you come from. So we've really got that culture of it's just very accepting of wherever you come from. And I do not do positive discrimination. I will not do that, which is really hard, particularly when you're trying to get women to come and mm. work in a trade tech organization. You go, well, do we have to actually just say this next hire is a woman? You go, no, we just have to work harder to make sure that we have an equal balance in the candidate pool and they're all exceptional, mm. which means that we get to where we are. So it's just super hard to, mm. to do that when, because mm. the problem is in universities, right? There are not enough trade schools that have women coming through it and there's not enough tech women aren't that attracted to going to tech and that's just the gender problem like you could go through diversity so diversity is probably the one thing that i'm really proud of inside our culture awesome great to hear though like some of the stats you just mentioned that's incredibly powerful yeah i've I've been attacked a lot of times and i have to stick with those that's why i know these stats a middle-aged bald guy right Mm. i'm the stereotypical manager no i'm not just don't look at don't look at the exterior that's not Mm. that but you can, you know, that's why you're a CEO. So I mean, actually, it's not why I'm a CEO, but I am the living, breathing view of the stereotype, but I'm not mm. my grandfather. Like I do not give jobs to my mates. I do not yeah, give yeah. jobs to blokes. I Like I, it's a meritocracy. Bring mm. me good candidates and, and that's how you solve it. But it is difficult. You've got to work harder because the pool is unfortunately quite shallow. Our mm. CTO is, Katrina, is amazing. But we had to be flexible. She works in Wellington, but she is the best candidate, but we just had to be flexible in that work relationship. Mm. Oh, kudos to you. What do you think? There's obviously on the diversity and the culture piece, the benefits of working so hard, apart from that being a good thing to do within your business, what are the actual tangible benefits? Because I'm sure you've worked in businesses in the past that were pretty male skewed coming from the industries. What do you see now with the team that you've built, which is obviously incredibly diverse? You go, wow, we wouldn't have got that if we weren't so diverse. The, the thinking is different. And the light bulb moment I had was actually when we had a period of time where we were actually inversely. So it was 80% female on our executive, 20% male, and then and which meant there was two guys and, and whatever that ends up being, eight women. It actually wasn't that but it was roughly that ratio. Anyway, it worked out that I was the only person in a room, only male in the room. And I literally looked around to the team and went, so this is what it feels like. And they went, what are you talking about? I said, so this is what it feels like to be the token woman on a board with a bunch of blokes thinking bloke stuff. And it was quite confronting because there are different nuances to how both females and males think about problem solving. Neither is right or wrong. And it was the first time I went, actually, this is not helpful because we're going, we're way too, there was a couple of issues. You go, I think we're just taking, because we're talking to tradies, I'm not sure that will work because we're taking quite, it's an imbalanced view of it. And then when we get to the balance. So I think the question, what do you get out of it? It's diversity of thought, which is so important because if you go too far either way, whether and traditionally that's been too far male, but I've experienced when it's too far female and you go, ha, huh, it works both ways as well. You can have too many men and too many women, and it's the same thing in terms of you can have too many people who have come from an upwardly affluent background or too many people who have come through Ivy League colleges. You've got too many. Like all of the diversity pieces is not just about the obvious ones. Yeah, It's diversity of thought is the most important thing. And if you can make your company invisible to the physicality of that, it's actually that. So I, 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 
I find the whole concept of, and I get, get quite angry with it because my best man was actually wasn't my best mate. It was my my bride's groom, my, my wife and our best mate you know, he came dressed in in what he wanted to dress in. I don't give a stuff. So people sort of go, I don't, I don't care what goes on behind closed doors. Why is it relevant to anything? Don't throw it in my face. I won't throw it in your face. You don't mm. want to know about my personal life. I don't want to know about yours. I, I, if you've got kids, great. If you don't have kids, great. If you've got a, a partner of whatever persuasion, I still don't care. I'm interested in you, but it doesn't define what I think of you. And if you can get past that and get into, but what are you doing in the commercial life? What do you bring to the table? Have you got diversity of thought around the table? So I think that's what's interesting, particularly mm-hmm. in cultures like ours, which are so diverse mm-hmm. anyway. So you're hurting yourself in terms of sales. If you take a white middle-aged male view of the world, you'd end up with some pretty boring marketing, right? And you'd end up with this fixed customer base, which is, you know, it's groupthink. And that's, I think that's dangerous. Mm. So yeah, the, the benefits diversity, but then you get growth because the world is diverse. Yes. Makes sense. Trying to switch up the gear a little bit here, Dave. So we spoke about people, obviously really important, number one piece, right? And any, any good business. We talked about the culture and how you rally the team and making sure that they're rowing in the same direction. Where I want to lead to is metrics. How do you measure the health of your business as you're now growing and you're growing overseas and you're becoming global business? Are there any unconventional metrics that you keep an eye on? Yeah, interesting question. Obviously, we look at the traditional ones because mm-hmm. we're owned by the VCs that are, you know, the VCs are pretty strict. You know, ARR is king in the SaaS world. Um, we obviously look at um, net new accounts is probably better because you can disguise ARR with price mm-hmm. increases and a few other things to to effectively disguise problems in product. So net new accounts is looked pretty closely with that. One of the, the sort of cultural indicators that we look at is unplanned staff churn because I think staff churn by itself is you've got to be pretty honest about are you running nine box exercises and there's a couple once you mm. get to 100 people, there's some people that shouldn't be with you if you're going to progress to 2,000 people or that need to be hired over. So unplanned staff churn is certainly one. It's not necessarily that different or, or that radical, but it's definitely one that we look at. So it's probably in those areas of, staff health that we're interested in, unplanned staff churn, ENPS. I, I find NPS a bit irrelevant these days when you've got mm-hmm. churn factors, but ENPS is something that we look at and we do regular pulse checks on a weekly and monthly basis to just try and work out, hang on, and we don't really care about that we want a four out of five on our pulse. We look more that you're usually a three because everyone has their natural, right? I will never give anything five out of five. It's just not my nature, but I'm pretty steady at a four. If I start throwing a one, someone will ring me and go, what's wrong? I'm like, is it personal or is it business? What's making you yeah, upset yeah. right now? So we try to monitor that. I'm probably this moderately un- mm-hmm. unconventional, but there's nothing radical there. It all makes sense. Hey, also, kind of knowing the FSM space, how do you view the statement with many saying it's becoming overcrowded, everyone's trying to do the same thing, everything looks the same? Any views on that? Firstly, yeah, you're being very modest. I kind of know FSM like you like, like you had a lot to do with Simpro's success. So I think you know a lot about this this area. So I could ask you the same question. Yeah, I, I think it is becoming overcrowded. I think that it's not a winner takes all category. So it's not a Facebook, Uber. You, you can throw lots of money at this. 
winner. Maybe Salesforce would be an outlier on that, but usually you end up with pretty healthy four, five, six businesses. I think we're now getting into the category of there's some scale coming in, so it's becoming increasingly difficult to enter the market. There's a lot that are, but I think they'll churn out, and I think we've seen a couple that are happening today's capital markets that just won't make their next round. And then you've got this sort of second tier of which I put us into, which are solid businesses. They're not Service Titan or Simpro, but they're solid and they can survive and they're doing a good job. And I think that's where you'll start seeing some roll-ups. Barring some genius sitting in a laboratory somewhere or in a garage somewhere coming up with a way to absolutely totally rethink field service management and they've got some AI technology you can just think about doing admin and it gets done, like that could work. And maybe someone's creating that to disrupt the disruptors. But I think if you look at effectively ERPs around the world, you end up with four or five that are, are significant. But I think what's going to happen is you'll see roll-ups. So to- mm. totally. Yeah, you spot, I think you are asking, you're stating that as a hypothesis. I'd agree with the hypothesis. I think that's <laughs> But no. I think it's over the next yeah. three to five. I don't think it's in the next year. No. I think over the next three to five, you'll see there'll be four or five major players globally that just mop up the rest. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, David, we had Ashik here from Deputy on the show. And one of the things he said, which I totally loved, is that CEO's got two main priorities. One is to obviously make sure the people are right and the culture. And second is that product and its quality is maintained. Obviously, product roadmap plays a big part, especially in the world that we live in, FSM. What are you excited about for the next phase of Fergus? Where is the product heading? It's a twofold question. Is your product roadmap made up of customer feedback or are you as an executive team thinking of ideas where we need to go? And how do you think of all of that sort of stuff? Yeah. So yeah, super excited about where things are going. And and again, coming back from Sastra, like everything's AI, like AI, AI, AI. What was interesting is one of the investors was saying they go through 100 presentations on AI. It's all pretty much demo where at the moment, hypothetical, no one's actually using it um, other than other SaaS businesses. So there's quite a lot of SaaS businesses using it to, how do I improve my sales script by throwing that through ChatGPT to find which is a successful sales. I can look through 500 transcripts to find out what's the best one. But no one's nailed it from a field service management. But I definitely think that there is probably more in the machine learning than the AI space because we're systems of record that we could literally draw the dots between, hang on, every time you create an invoice, it follows this flow. So why do we even have an approval process? So that would be one really simple one is you always wait to invoice customers because you, you want to check it. You haven't changed anything in the last 500 invoices that could have given you another 30 days worth of cash flow because you always take 30 days to get to it because you're the boss and you want to see it. Providing those sorts of insights has, oh, yeah, do I? I've never changed them. No, you never change the invoice. Those sorts of learnings are super interesting. I think then there's some group interesting areas of, of shared learnings in and around what margin should you be looking at? I don't see bleeding edge innovation because I think the biggest issue in field service and job management, depending on which continent you are, depending on which mm. acronym you want to use for it, the biggest issue we've got is education. So we've still got way too many people on paper. So me creating an amazing widget for, for our existing customers might not be the thing that gets the vast majority to start using it. And, and what we find is the product is probably in fact is too sophisticated in the early days 
for most small businesses. So it's how do you take them on that journey of there's some change management here and it's going to change your life and I'm still stuffing in a whole pile more features into this thing for you. So that's our biggest challenge. It's not so much innovation, although we are getting pushed by our existing customers. To answer your question um, in two parts, the first part is that education piece. I think the industry's done an appalling job as an industry. We're all trying to beat each other to mm. death rather than actually saying we can be frenemies. Mm. We can actually come together and say, let's have a field service management industry and go out and maybe we do a television commercial as an industry to educate the whole thing. We don't have the economies of scale to do that ourselves. So what would we do to grow the whole thing together? And then the second component of product, uh, we do get some good ideas coming from customers, but mostly it's through the lens of how do you improve how you're currently doing it? So it's not that revolutionary step change. That certainly is something we get a lot from Dan as the founder. He's still thinking like that. What, what comes next that's totally revolutionary? We're getting that from our product teams, but we also get that from our sales teams. So we tend to have those through internal brainstorms. Some may come through, oh, we want a better reporting tool. It, it tends to be that whole Henry Ford thing, right? As if you mm. ask my customers, I would have had a faster horse. That's where you get a lot of great customer feedback. I'm annoyed that your reports take three minutes to run. Okay, we, let's go and fix our reports, make them faster, easier to use. I want to be able to talk to Fergus and for that to actually understand everything I'm doing and compile it into some sort of machine learning component. I've never had any customer ask for that. That's the sort of thing that would excite me on the innovation front. So it tends to be big eye innovation. We do internally and then test very quickly with customers and get their feedback on, oh, yeah, this is something I'd use, but I'd change it a little bit. And then little eye innovation, that comes all from the customers and usually from your success team. Balance approach. Yeah. Hey, switching back to you and putting you under the spotlight again, CEO is a tough job. I've got a lot of respect for it. I've got a lot of friends who are CEOs. One thing you've got to manage really well is obviously your team, but the other side is the board. How yeah. do you get that balance right, Dave? It's two jobs. I love pretty much all sport, and but we won't talk about the rugby because neither country will <laughs> that right now. Let's skip it for uh, this week. Let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's maybe next week for you yeah. guys. I don't, I'm not sure we'll get to next week. i got two roles. So, so in terms of managing internally, I see it's a head coach role. So how do you get the most out of your players? And sometimes you've got to pick new players, but it's, it's pretty much a head coach role. If you take sort of an NFL approach to it, but you're also the team owner, I've got to source funding. I've got to keep those the owners happy. So you've got that dual role. They're probably the equally difficult roles, but they are very distinct from in terms of what you need to do. All the other functional things at our scale, and it, it tends to be around about the 50-60 mark, you, you've got to stop contributing. Uh, I think it's what got you here won't get you there, I think is the book where it says you're a good CEO, but you now want to be a multinational and a huge and all that sort of stuff. And, and I think number three on the list is stop helping. So you can't come and go, oh, yeah, that marketing campaign, I've got an idea, why don't we do? Okay, now the CEO is making all the decisions still. So you've got to be the coach and say, what is the big thing, big idea you've got and can I support it? Really hard to do because I always want to be helpful, but sometimes you've got to go, yeah, you're being too helpful because I, I think probably going back to your old question, what's the biggest mistake, and I still make this, is forgetting on the CEO. So when the CEO says, oh, got an idea everyone goes oh great stop everything let's do that idea so i know it was just an idea i was just thinking out loud but you got to be really careful about having a light bulb moment because mm. sometimes the whole team stops and goes 
oh, no, let's go do what Dave was talking about. It's just an idea. So sometimes that's a challenge. It's not necessarily an order. It's just an opinion. It's just oh, an idea. In fact, I yeah. do quite regularly now. I'll say, guys, this is not an edict. I'm not asking you to do this. I'm asking your opinion. So I'm really yeah. deliberate. I'm asking your opinion. I've got this thing going around my mind. And I'm not sure it's a good idea or a bad idea. Just want your opinion on it. Unfortunately, if they think it's a good idea, then they have actually stopped everything. It's, Hang on, we didn't actually work out whether we we're going to allocate resources to it, but by by default, because we all like it, now we have. Oops, something just fell over, and maybe we didn't look at the trade off as whether we should have let that thing fall over. And that's the other thing of hiring innovative people that the, the, the bright shiny thing can be a bit of a problem too. And on the flip side, then how do you manage those expectations with board who are then telling you constantly perhaps what to do? Like how do you how do you maintain that pushback and the friendliness and professionalism at the same time? Yeah, it's a tough one. I think the biggest problem, and it, it's certainly not as big a deal for me now as I'm getting older, but when you're a young MD or CEO, you do report to the to the board, but you're a little bit afraid that they, they don't like what you're doing and might get rid of you. Bottom line is they are going to get rid of you, right? Like I think the average tenure for CEOs mm-hmm. is three. I've gone through four, so I'm like I'm doing a bit better than, than most, right? So if you take that attitude, which is I serve at your pleasure, but I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not just here to serve. If you guys don't like me, we'll just have an adult conversation and I'll go away and do something else. So you've got to be honest and really hard for humans to do that, particularly if you're someone like me, like you're wanting to be helpful. Sometimes you've got to go, no, I just totally disagree with that strategy and I'm not doing it. <laughs> If it's that big, I'm just not going to put my reputation onto that. That's a dumb idea. And sometimes it's not as drastic as that. You just got to disagree and commit. But it's a real hard one to do. Sure. Uh, yeah. Alignment, probably the biggest thing I will always say if I'm interviewing for a CEO role is how's the alignment? And what you're looking for there is the CEO is the meat and the sandwich. So you need alignment between board strategy and execution so the board needs to like the strategy that comes hopefully from your leadership team up to the board. They're involved in that. Then they then you align on it. And then the meat and the sandwich is what you don't want is the ELT is thinking the strategy is X and the board thinks the strategy is Y. And it's that's a horrible place to be as a CEO. And you need to get out of there very quickly or just leave because you're going to have a miserable life trying to keep two effectively two wives happy. It doesn't work. Like it doesn't, you've got to, you, you you have to just keep both sets happy, which means alignment. Brilliant, best way to put it. That should, we're gonna we're gonna quote that. You can't keep <laughs> well, two wives happy. Believer in happy yeah. wife, happy life, right? Yeah. Like, that's yeah. Just doesn't work in plural. Um, does not work in plural. <laughs> Nor should it. No, it should not. We'll, we'll never leave it at that. <laughs> hey, now that we got the easy stuff out of the way, we'll take you to quick fire round, Dave. These are make or break. Um, Favourite movie of all time? Oh, it's a terrible cliche and it's I've, I've been asked this before and I hate saying it, but, but it stuck with me. It's a movie called Gallipoli. But I watched it when I was 13 years of age and it just profoundly stuck with me. All right. Nice. Yeah, I've seen it at school. Not a particularly enjoyable movie, but. That's all right. It's your favourite. Uh, favourite music genre? Do you, do you have one? Oh, absolutely. No, as a. Spiral uh, rock star? Yeah, as a blurt out rock star. Yeah. Rock with a tinge of bluegrass. Yeah, nice. Uh, favorite sports team, mate? Manly Sea Eagles. Oh, really? Mm. 
Yeah, I don't have I don't have fond memories of Manly Seagulls. No one does. Yeah. But if you if you grew up on the northern beaches there, you're like, my favorite place to visit Sydney on a gorgeous day like this is hard to be, but anywhere else uh, you'd rather be? Uh Italy, yeah, only because I had my honeymoon there. Yeah, Great, greatest time of my life. Great, nice, night. brilliant. And this is what the entire podcast is all about. This is the main question we built it up to, right? Whether people like me or hate me, right? Basically. Exactly. This is what writes your future curve. Uh, peanut butter, how do you like it? Crunchy <laughs> or smooth? Smooth. 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 I'm not a. I'm not. A, I'm not anti crunchy, but definitely smooth would be the preference. Okay, we'll have to edit the other part out. On that note, Dave, thank you once again for coming on the show and sharing all your insight, mate. Truly appreciate it. Oh, mate, a lot of fun.